Hey everyone, it's Paul Durham. Welcome to Telling Lies to Children. I'm coming to you from the coop at the edge of the swamp. And as always, you can listen on iTunes or Stitcher or right on my website, pauldurhambooks.com. Today I was joined by Caroline Carlson. Uh, Caroline is a another middle grade author. She wrote a series of books called The Very Nearly Honorable League of Pirates, uh, which was a lot of fun. And she also has a new book coming out this spring called The World's Greatest Detective, which is a murder mystery for middle grade readers. Uh, and she talks a bit about it on the uh, on the show today. Uh, but one of the things that was what was really great about this particular podcast episode, and that why I really like this one, um, Caroline is is extremely um, thoughtful and well spoken, and we actually got into some topics that I haven't covered uh, before on the uh, podcast. I mean, we we got a little bit real when it came to things like. Um, Battling that green-eyed monster of jealousy. Um, as authors, we're, it, it, we're, it's always a challenge to not sort of worry about what our peers and contemporaries are doing and, and keep looking ahead. And um, so we had, a, we had a nice discussion about that and some of the challenges of, of really staying focused and, and uh, not, you know, not getting too down when you, we see things happening, happening around you that um, you know, sometimes you wish were happening for you. And, um, and we also talked uh, a bit about... Um, gender balance on um, middle grade author panels and on uh, publisher-sponsored author tours. Uh, Caroline has written about this before, and I wanted to give her the opportunity to, to speak about it on the podcast. And um, sometimes it can be a, a touchy subject, but uh, I, I think um, Caroline's words will, will just speak for themselves. She just had um, an incredibly eloquent response and answers. And uh, really, really appreciated her thoughts and, and, and enjoyed the discussion. Uh, you'll hear me kind of, you know, tiptoeing around, fumbling around to ask the question. Um, and, and Caroline is just so succinct and uh, so so well spoken the way that uh, the way that she that she handles and, and, and just uh, talks very openly about her her thoughts on that discussion, um, which also leads into a discussion of uh, uh, diversity in uh, children's literature in general. So I really enjoyed it. I, re I really had a, had a, a great time talking with her, and I and I appreciated her um, uh, talking about some heady subjects. And in, in in addition to the usual, you know, school visit, uh, school visits, uh, writing process, what we're writing, kind of questions. It was it was r really great. So I hope you'll listen uh, all the way through. Uh, it's a uh, it's it's a I think a meatier podcast uh, than usual, and there's there's some really great stuff in there. So. Uh, Join me and Caroline right after the introduction. Thanks for being here today. Shh. Are the kids gone? Good. It's time for Telling Lies to Children with me, your host, Paul Durham. This is a first-of-its-kind podcast, one hosted by a children's author, that's me again, but intended for adults who live and breathe children's literature. That's you. Whether you're a librarian, a media specialist, a teacher, or a parent, we all work with children every day. But sometimes, it's nice to talk like adults with adults who share our love of children's books and publishing. I'll be chatting with editors at the world's biggest publishing houses, literary agents, award-winning authors, booksellers, librarians, and even young readers. Join me and my guests as we give you a candid, behind-the-scenes look at children's publishing, the business of telling lies to children but only the best kinds of lies, of course. Welcome, and I hope you enjoy the show. Thanks for joining me on Telling Lies to Children. Uh, it's always nice to have a fellow uh, fellow liar on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and I use that term nicely. I I, I know you're, you're not a liar, but but you tell great you know great stories for kids. And, and... Oh, I uh, I was a pretty big liar as a kid, and I like to think it was just practice for my eventual profession. Were you really? Were you big, yeah. you big on fibs as a kid? What kind of lies oh, did you tell as a yeah. kid? Yeah. Oh, I'm trying to think. I. Uh... I, you'd have to call my mom and, and ask her for specifics, but well, a lot well, of I got let's get let's get her on. <laughs> <laughs> I got so good at it that I don't think she knew after a while. 
that I wasn't quite, and I, you know, the trick to lying is never to tell a big whopper. It's always to kind of take the truth and then just twist a couple of facts so that you weren't the person who maybe uh, pinched your brother so hard that he cried. I can't imagine you would ever do that. <laughs> no, never, never. I would never pinch my brother. No, of course not. Of course not. But, <laughs> but, um, but you're right. And, and that's, I, I don't like, it's, that's part of, I think, good storytelling too. And good fiction is taking the truth and, and bending it enough to make it interesting, but realistic at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you, I mean, I think you do that with very nearly honorable. Do you call it, do you call it VNHLP? What's the short way to, to, to talk about your, your uh, first series? There is no short way. This, if I had to give advice to any aspiring writer, I would say choose a short title for your book. Um, because telling people that I'm the author of the very nearly honorable League of Pirates, Magic Marks the Spot is extremely it, it just leaves me out of breath every time I have to say it so I do say I say VNHLP but that's pretty long too and kind of a tongue twister it's a, it, it, it's it's a mouthful but it's I mean it's it's good stuff in there I I, I read it um actually um I, I the editor who acquired your book sent it to me do you, um, do you uh, Phoebe, I think Phoebe A acquired your book Is yes that right? yeah. yeah Phoebe I love yeah. her yeah Phoebe's awesome Phoebe actually edited the luck she bought and edited the first luck uglies book oh wonderful um so yeah so your book was one of the first ones sort of from her collection that she sent to me and uh, and it was a lot of fun and, and the reason why I bring it up is because as much as much as it's you know fantastical and it, it has um uh, you know it has a has a gargoyle in it which i'm a big i'm a big fan of gargoyles <laughs> yes uh, team gargoyle yeah um but it also you know it, it's it has some elements of you know of piracy and there's it, it's it's bending the truth but there's a little it's not completely way out there and outlandish right so. <laughs> yeah yeah i um it's funny because so much the book is obviously you know, there's magic in it. It's set in a totally different world. There are all sorts of things that would just never, ever happen. But for me, where the the truth came in, or at least where I tried to bring in as much actual experience that I've had as possible is in the characters and their reactions and their friendships and their, you know, so much of the story is about um, interpersonal relationships and how you feel when, you know, you make a new friend or you lose a friend or you're having trouble with your parents. And I tried to make that stuff as authentic as I could, even though it's set in a magical world where nothing is very much like it is here. The speculative fiction that I enjoy the most is the kind that, that is like that, that makes it is relatable for kids and young readers and adults for that matter. Um, even though it is magical and it's, it's somewhere that we, can't necessarily ever go except in our imaginations um speaking of places that well this isn't this, this is a terrible transition not places that we can't <laughs> go um places i could certainly go so you live and work in in the pittsburgh area is that right i do yes now is there is there sort of like a little mg like a happening mg community in pittsburgh because i know <laughs> i know oxia is over there i know and I think, I think i've met a couple other mg authors from the pittsburgh area yeah there are a few of us and i think uh they're the, there's a very small but thriving kidlit community, and it keeps getting bigger and bigger as people decide that maybe New York City is a little too expensive for them, and they realize that they can come buy a whole entire house in Pittsburgh and can maybe afford to be a full-time writer here in ways that they can't in more expensive places. So, yeah, I, they're not... The literary scene here is definitely growing, but even just in the time that I've been living here, which has been about five years... Uh, yeah, there's been more and more happening. We just had a, a, a middle grade and YA uh, book signing at a Barnes & Noble nearby last week, and I think there were eight or nine of us authors, so cool. there's plenty to go around, yeah. Well, the, I think you just wrote some copy for the Chamber of Commerce about uh, <laughs> you, can, you, can, you can come live and be a writer and buy a whole house in Pittsburgh. Well, we're always trying to get people to come because uh, we need, we, I mean, as, as many wonderful children's literature authors as there are here, we're always looking for more people to uh, recruit and come write with us. So there you go. Yeah. come to Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. <laughs> now, do you, do you have... Um, I mean, we all have, I guess, acquaintances and friends, but do you, do you have like sort of a, a group of friends in the MG or YA community in the MGYA world? Yeah, I feel really lucky to have a lot of different groups of writer friends and uh, kind of support systems that I've made along the way. I went to uh, Vermont College of Fine Arts, VCFA, for oh, okay. uh, 
master's degree in writing for children. Um, and so I have a ton of friends from that community. It's just, um, I know something that some writers say about grad programs in writing is that they can be really competitive and cutthroat. Um, but VCFA was not like that at all. And everyone is not only really supportive of each other's writing while they're in the program, but really supportive of everybody else's careers once you're out and working, um, trying to get published, post-publication. Uh, so I know a lot of people through that community. Um, and then I was also part of a online debut group uh, when my first book came out in 2013. Uh, so I was part of the Lucky 13s, and I think there are probably 100 and 120 of us uh, in that group of uh, picture book, middle grade, and YA authors who all had our first books out in that same year. Um, and we don't all keep in touch, obviously. It's a lot of people. But um, yeah, some of my very best writing friends I made uh, through that group just because we all had books coming out around the same time. And I, I think I was in the in the fourteen. I can't remember what what they called it, but I was in like the fourteen class, yes. whatever, what, whatever that was. And it is a great it is a great way to meet um, peers because that debut year is sort of like the it's sort of like the wonder year. I mean, I think, <laughs> you know, like, right? Like a lot of us, I think we go in with like you know wide eyes, and you know, for for many of us, I don't I don't want to speak for you, but it's sort of like it feels like you finally broken through uh, on your way to achieving this sort of lifelong ambition and dream. And, um, and it, it is, it's an, it's an amazing accomplishment. And then you get to sort of peek behind the curtain and, and then you see, and then you see that yeah, it's still really cool. Um, but there's, yeah. a, but, but there's a whole other, then there's a whole other layer. And if, if, you know, that people don't really, you know, aspiring authors or people who are unpublished, they can't really relate to it until you've gotten behind the curtain and then you realize all the other stuff, all the gears and machinery and all the stuff that you can, yeah. you know, kind of get yourself tangled into and lose a finger sometimes if you're not <laughs> I think that's a really apt metaphor yeah it's uh it's really exciting and fascinating but um you just need other people to talk to about this stuff as you're trying to figure out you know am I gonna sell another book oh I got this really scary revision letter what am I supposed to do you know am I going to get marketing support from my publisher what should I do to prepare myself for my book coming out it's just I found that first year between when I sold my book, I guess it was probably like a year and a half, almost two years really, between when I sold my first book and when it was actually published. And I wasn't expecting it to be such a psychologically difficult time. I was expecting, you know, oh, I'll sell my first book and then I'll just be happy for the rest of my life because I have achieved my dream. And in some ways that's true. I mean, it's, it's wonderful to be a writer. I absolutely love my job and it was thrilling to sell that first book but I was immediately hit with tons of self-doubt with I didn't write for three or four months after that first book sale because I was just paralyzed with you know uncertainty about whether I could write anything else or I, I felt like there was a lot of pressure I didn't know what my editor's expectations were what my agent's expectations were all of a sudden I was writing for an actual audience instead of just for myself and um, I was really glad I had people to talk to about that because to to outsiders it might sound a little crazy they're like you just sold your book why aren't you happy why are you so freaked out so yeah it's nice to be able to talk to people who have been there and and understand what that whole process is like did you find yourself ever, and I and I did often, and I, I still battle it sometimes. Did, did you find yourself ever getting into the pattern of where you're you start looking to sort of the left and to the right as opposed to straight ahead? And what I mean by that is, you know, you start drawing comparisons to what other authors are doing or achieving, or you know, the reviews they're getting or the sale, you know, the the commercial success they may be having. Did you did you fall into that trap at all? Oh, it's so hard to, to not fall into that trap. I don't know if it's even possible to avoid it. Yeah. I mean, I still have moments like that all the time where, you know, I'm happy for other people's success, but there's always a little part of me that's thinking like, oh, why didn't I get that thing? Or maybe I should write this new book in a different way so that I get the thing next time. And it's not, I don't do good work when I'm writing to get accolades for myself that's just not a good way to write that's uh it doesn't produce good work at least for me so I have to constantly turn that part of my brain off and and write a book because I want to write it and because I think it's fun and I like it and 
because that's ultimately all you can control if you're writing a book so that you can you know get a a bigger book deal or better reviews or something like that um it's i feel like a, a book is really something you should write because it's something you care about and not because you're doing it for somebody else but that can be really hard i, I haven't quite figured out how to how to stop that from happening and i don't think i ever will it's re it's really a day-by-day -day thing isn't it i mean yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm exactly in the same boat as you like I, li I like like i like to think that i'm self-aware enough that you know i know when i'm falling into those patterns and i'm like this isn't this doesn't make sense you can't do this you gotta you know you gotta you gotta keep working on you know all you can do is create you know tell the best story you can tell the story you want to create and don't worry about what's going on around you and then and yet you know the the, the potholes are there and I, I step in them and i know i'm stepping in them and i <laughs> i just have to <laughs> kind of you know pull myself out again and um so i'm so i'm right with you and it, it really isn't it's incredibly it's incredibly challenging and it's difficult to do that because i think um one of the things that when we all first at least when i first started writing it really was so much about the story and so much about just getting over that hurdle of i'll just be happy to be published if i if yeah. i you know if i ever have a book on on a shelf someday to me that's walking on the moon um and then once you get there you know it's i think it's like anything else in life you're like well i, I want this to be a career and i want this to be a job and i want to succeed at it and you and you start you know try getting competitive it's it's weird like i you know it's like i'm i'm not competitive with other authors but i am in some ways it's like <laughs> you know it's like i don't want to mm -hmm. be that way and and you know the the friends and, and people i've met uh and people like who are nice enough to do things like come on the podcast with me like I, I wish them all the greatest success in the world and i think there's enough success for everybody but there is you know there's still that just little ugly part of my brain I think that I'm like yeah man I could be doing more or I should be doing that you know it's it's there yeah. and it, it just have to manage it yeah it's uh you can't help making comparisons that's kind of inevitable I think yeah. uh but what what I really like to do in those situations is if I have a school visit coming up or some situation where I get to go talk to kids uh, that really helps because to them, you're a famous author. You, you might think all sorts of you know negative things about yourself, but when you go and talk to kids who've read your book, they're so excited about the story and they don't care what your reviews are or like who got a bigger advance than you or something like that. Uh, it so is, that, it, that's it is, always fun. Yeah, no, that, that, that is the best reaffirmation in the world, especially if you're feeling down on yourself or you're, you know, you're, you're worried about if the next contract's going to come or, or you're beating yourself up over a revision. Um, yeah, kids can really, I mean, they can really lift you up when you get into in front of a crowd of them. It's, that's, that's a, they're, they're, they're great. And reconnecting with your, your actual audience is, yes. it, it makes, <laughs> makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. When you first started, we, we talked a little bit about sort of that process of that, that first year. Now in, in your case, uh, you're, you sold a trilogy initially, right? So you, did you, you had a, you were on the pace of a book a year coming out. Yeah, that's right. Right. So um, I was kind of in the same boat. So you really, uh, I imagine, and I know you did Harper's Class X tours at least once or twice, a couple times anyway, right? Yep. Yeah. So so it was it was sort of like you had, you were on that cycle of a book a year. Uh, they you know they pretty much had to be done and into copy edits almost a year before the on sale date. Um, then you had the tours you were going out going out on. Um, and, and your own school visits and things like that. How did you find, I mean, how did you find that process? Was that a bit of a, a bit of a blur, a bit of a whirlwind? How did you, how did you, you, you juggle all that? Yeah, it was a whirlwind. I'm trying to think back on it and it's, it all kind of runs together. Um, so I pitched uh, my first book, Magic Marks the Spot, just as a standalone, uh, but with, you know, quote, with series potential. The, the magic, the magic phrase there, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so when Harper offered, uh, for a trilogy, I said yes, because I thought that there were probably two more books I could write with those characters. I felt like I had enough inspiration to move the story forward for two more books, and it seemed like a really good opportunity. Um, but yeah, I was definitely intimidated by the book a year schedule. I know some people who are really fast writers who can write you know, six or eight books in a year, or at least first drafts of them. And they, they wish that they could sell books more quickly so that they could just write more and more and more. But I am not one of those people. Um, so I knew it was going to be 
a struggle for me. But I also felt like at the very beginning of my career, it was a really good time to try to make that investment and to have people be familiar with me so that later on, if I needed to take a bit more time between books, um, that wouldn't be quite so difficult. I'd already be a little bit established. So yeah, I wrote, um, the great thing about when you sell your first book, of course, is that usually you have uh, the manuscript done and really well polished because uh, you've been sending it out on submission to agents and editors. So there's not so much work to do sometimes on the first book. Uh, but then for the second and the third book, in my case, I was just uh, writing based on a couple of paragraphs of proposal. Um, and... It, they kind of took me progressively more time. I think I wrote the first draft of my first book in four months, which is very fast for me. I wrote the first draft of the second book in five months and the first draft of the third book in six months. And by that point, um, I wanted to get everything done on like book three before book one even came out because I had about a two-year gap between when I sold book one and when it was published. Um, and I, I did not make that goal. I think I was like, I had just started writing book three when book one came out. And then I had to start doing some school visits and uh, a couple of tours, like you said. And yeah, it was, that's when it really became tricky to balance going out into the world and being kind of the public part of the author job and then coming back home and being quiet and and getting my head back in the space where I could actually work on writing. Um, but I think that's, it's important to learn how to balance that because that's what being an, a writer for kids is like. You have to kind of go out and, and be a performer in some ways. Um, and then you have to come back and work on your writing. And I don't do a lot of, uh, public stuff for that very reason because I feel like for me the books are the most important part because if I don't have books coming out I don't have anything to talk about uh, so I love visiting schools and going to book festivals and stuff like that uh, but it's not a huge part of my writing career at the moment because I need to be at home actually putting words on the page most of the time yeah and I think I, and I'm, I'm with you there and I think you know for a lot of us that's really what we you know, putting words on the page is the most important part because without doing that, that's that's the core of everything we do. Um, I, you know, I've come to, I've come to really. It sounds like you have too, but I've come to really love the school visits. Um, once you're in between a series, though, you know, obviously it's it's you do need to be putting words on a page and be working on something else. You have the uh, now you do have a little bit more of a gap between uh, your the end of of your first trilogy and your new book, which is coming out this coming spring, right? That's right. Yes. So, so this is like one of those periods where it sounds like you had, uh, it, it pushed back maybe you have like an extra season, I guess, right? To... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I had my third book, uh, The Buccaneers Code, came out last September uh, 2015. And my next book, The World's Greatest Detective, which is not a uh, part of the series, it's totally new, standalone, uh, comes out next May 2017. So that's a year and a half-ish. Um, and originally, I, I think my editor and agent would have been really happy for me to continue uh, the book a year schedule, but I just knew I was not going to be feasible. Um, I Like I said, I'm not a super fast writer most of the time, and I just couldn't sustain that pace um, and still do all the other you know, have I have a family, I have a life outside of writing, and I, I needed to kind of tend to that as well. Um, and the other thing about my upcoming book uh, is that it's a murder mystery, which turns out those uh, take a little while to write. <laughs> so <laughs> I had to do a lot more extent. I am, I like to plot in advance of, of all of my books. I like to have at least a rough outline of what's going on in the story before I start writing. Oh, good for uh, you. Good for you. I wish I could do that. I still can't do that. <laughs> I, oh, I freak out when I don't know what's happening next. It really, it really bothers me. <laughs> but um, with a mystery, you need to plant clues along the way. You need to know who all the suspects are and where they are and why so-and-so couldn't have done it and what all the red herrings are going to be. And you need to know kind of the truth of what happened, the truth of the mystery, and then you need to obfuscate it. Um, so that book, I was 
I'm trying to think about how many deadlines I missed while I was writing that book. I think I was supposed to turn it in to my editor in something like June, and I turned it in in December. So uh, that's part of the reason why it is um, more than a year gap. Uh, part of I, I was at least aware enough to ask for a little more time from the get-go, and then I had to push back my deadlines a couple times after that um, to, to finish the draft. You know, you're not the first author to have missed the deadline. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. I mean, I think that's why that's I think that's why every publisher builds in. Usually, when they when they build in those deadlines, they they build in such a uh, <laughs> such a cushion because <laughs> they know it's inevitable for us to um, take more time um, often. But usually, the books are better for it. I mean, you know, books it, it, I, books that get forced. You know, some people can do it, but if you if you force a book, it's not the end product's not going to be not going to be what anybody's looking for. Yeah, I really agree. I mean, I don't want to publish a book that I'm not happy with. And, uh, and I know that my editor doesn't want to publish a book that she's not happy with. And, you know, obviously you don't want to drag your feet too much. I think it's really hard to, to find a balance between, um, you know, giving yourself enough time to make your art really good and also being a good business person because as a writer, you are both of those things. Um, and I actually, before I started writing children's books, I worked for a few years uh, as a textbook editor. And so I had freelance writers who were working for me and turning stuff in. And as much as I really wanted their work to be polished and excellent so I didn't have to you know, do too much more work to it when it came in. I also really liked it when people were on time because there are all sorts of internal schedules in publishing and if you miss one milestone then it just affects all the other milestones and people get really crabby and um, so for me it's kind of a constant balance between saying okay I want you know I want this book to be as good as I can make it I don't want to turn in something that I'm not happy with, but I also really need to be as proactive as I can be about letting my editor know, and hopefully she's okay with it being a little bit later. And it's, I think it's hard to, uh, you don't want to be too much of a diva, but you also don't want to write terrible books. So it, it's tricky. It's just, it's being professional. And, that, yeah. and, and, you know, it's funny, I came, I came from a very different background. I mean, I was a lawyer forever. Uh, that's a story for another <laughs> lifetime. Um, but, you know, I, when I first started, you know, writing under contract, I, I didn't even realize that being late was an option. Like it just, yeah, even, it didn't yeah. even occur to me. And, and I think that, you know, a lot of times the, you know, the editors, because I worked, I've worked with a few, were kind of just sort of flabbergasted that I was always you know, a day early. Like it was never like wow. a day, it was never like a day late. It was always like a day a day early. A day and, early. That I think that's pretty unheard of. Well yeah. Done. So it was just kind of weird. Now I've gotten worse. I've adapted to the ways of the of the industry. <laughs> I I also think that if I I don't know if this is true. I kind of hope that it's true that if you start out uh, showing the people you work with um, that you are trustworthy and conscientious, um, then you can get away with having a little more leeway later on because they know that you'll pull through eventually. I think if you're a newbie writer and you're just blowing past all your deadlines, I think people might be a little scared. Um, not that you should ever blow past all your deadlines, no, but, uh, no. but yeah, I think the, the longer you build relationships with people, if you say, I'm going to need a couple extra weeks, they won't be too scared. Yeah, that's that's been my experience, and, and especially a couple extra weeks. You know, they're used to they're used to seeing, they've seen far worse. So so usually, I think, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but that said, for young for young writers out there, for all the, you know, writers getting their MFAs or BFAs, whatever it may be, um, be on time. Yeah, it, it, it's a, it's a great way to start is by it being on being on time. So um, and it, it'll make you, it'll differentiate you from many of the other people in the industry. So that's right. There, there, there's some advice. So um, I, have a, I have a question I want to ask you, Caroline, something that, that I know that you've um, at least talked a little bit about before, and um, I, I wanted to see if you, if you want to talk a bit about it now, and I'm just curious. Um, as far as, you know, when, we, when it comes to author promotions and, and touring and, um, uh, you know, publishers, you know, sending us out to sort of to do our thing, um, how have you found the representation of female authors uh, 
to be on on those tours just in general in 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 the book world as far as as far as promotion goes because i think it's it's something that that has come up before i you know i've i've kept an eye on it myself i think it's i think it's an interesting discussion that that people can have and should be having um as i said we don't necessarily have to have it on on the podcast but i'm just curious to get your thoughts on that sure yeah um yeah, this is something that I have thought a lot about and, and talked a bit about um, online, uh, just because I think for me it, it has been particularly noticeable because I am a woman writing humorous adventure stories for the most part. That's kind of where all my books have fallen so far. And I think a lot of the other people writing middle grade books like that, um, many of them are men. So I have been in situations where I've been the only woman on a panel or the only woman in a group of authors going, being sent out somewhere. Um, and it makes my gender feel very salient in a way that um, I'm not necessarily used to in the children's book world because um, certainly among, for example, my grad school classmates, our, our program was heavily female. And among the lucky 13s I was talking about, it's almost all women. So I think um, when you have most of the authors you know being women and then you find yourself the only woman on a, in a group of men, um, it's definitely surprising. And um, I feel myself trying to, like I feel kind of pressured to be like the voice of all women because I am the woman. Um, which is strange and I'm sure not accurate. I don't think anyone actually expects me to be that. But when you're the only person in a group who's different, you feel your difference sticking out more and you feel more pressure, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, to represent that group. And the other uh, thing that I've encountered uh, that frustrates me is that if I'm the only woman on a panel, for example, all the people in the audience with daughters think that their daughters should get my book and all the people in the audience with sons think that their sons shouldn't read my book uh, because I'm a woman so clearly I write for girls and about girls and it's a girls book none of which is true I write for everybody and there are boys and girls in my books and everyone can and should read my books um, so that can be uh, a bit of a challenge to to let people know that you know just because I'm I'm the one woman up here. That doesn't mean that I'm only speaking uh, to girls or about girls. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, as a publishing industry in the past few years, just since my first book came out, we've had so many really valuable conversations about uh, representation. And it's not just about gender, it's about race and sexuality and all sorts of basically kids being able to see all different kinds of people up in front of them uh, presenting themselves as authors and saying, look, if you're like me, you can do this too when you grow up. And I think it's really, really wonderful for kids to be able to see uh, lots of different people as authors and not just men, not just white people, um, to, to get a really uh, varied idea of what being an author looks like. So uh, that's important to me, and I'm really glad that so many editors and agents uh, and authors and illustrators have all been involved in these conversations. Um, I know it can often be painful um, to to talk about this stuff, but I think having the conversation is much better than just ignoring it. And I have seen people make more efforts to try to to promote more diverse voices, and I think that's really great. So. I try to be mindful of that too. If uh, you know the the panels that I'm on are not always the most diverse in terms of things other than gender, or sometimes I'm on a panel that's all women, and that's not ideal either. So, you know, we can't we can't all figure it out the first time around necessarily. But I think it's really good for people to be mindful when they're organizing events, uh, figuring out who to invite. Just try to choose a bunch of different people who write a bunch of different kinds of things from different backgrounds who can offer different perspectives uh, to, to give something to all readers and not just a certain type of reader. I mean, that's really, I mean, it's really well said and well put, Caroline. I mean, that, I, you know, I really appreciate the way you presented that because it's, 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 one, of those, it's one of those things that I think um, 
gender-wise, I don't think I was as aware of it. it. It wasn't something that that registered to me just because everybody who's been important to my career in the publishing industry has been a woman, frankly, mm-hmm. with, with, mm-hmm. with, with a few, you know, a few exceptions. My agent now happens to be male, but all my, you know, editors and, and, um, you know, so many of my author friends, I mean, it's, but, you know, then when you point out that, you know, on some of these, these panels, it can look very different than the actual industry does. Um, you know, what, whatever the reasons, just the awareness that that you're advocating for and just that you that you just mentioned, I think really is important. And and obviously with, you know, in the past few years with, you know, we need diverse books and, and there has been so much discussion. So I think it's I think it's it, it's so helpful. And and um, thank you for putting it that way, because I think I think you, you really summed, summed up the importance of it very nicely. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's it's definitely it's complicated to talk about. And I think a lot of us feel awkward all the time we're talking about it. But I think it's important to have the discussion, even when we feel kind of weird about it. You know, I, I think about it in my writing a little bit, because, you know, obviously, I, I'm a, you know, I'm a white male, I'm you know, 43 years old. I mean, that, that that's who I am. Um, and, you know, I think of my series, which, you know, as I, this wasn't by design, but it is sort of, you know, sort of like a, a medieval type fantasy. And I think about the way I, as much as I think that there are characteristics and traits uh, in uh, in The Luck Uglies, my first series, that anybody can relate to, yeah, when I describe characters, looking back on it, I realize that there's not a whole lot of diversity. Um, I sort of am in that, uh, you know, sort of traditional fairy tale, medieval land, that uh, that role that we fall into where you, um, maybe don't describe people who look different than the traditional sort of, uh, you know, yep. European look. <laughs> and, um, and I wish I had done more of that. Uh, and, and that, and, you know, as I, as I, as I write, and now when I write things that are, are more, you know, contemporary, um, while it may not be my place to write from the perspective of, I don't want to say it's not my place, but I'm probably not, I'm, to be honest, I'm not the best person to write from the perspective of, of somebody uh, who, you know, uh, a young African-American boy living in the inner city. I shouldn't, I, and I'll say this critically of myself, I shouldn't be writing that book because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not going to bring the right perspective to that. Yep. But if I'm writing characters who, who are in that setting, and I want to make sure that there are characters who, who, who reflect what the real world looks like and, and actually, um, you know, have... Uh, great qualities and 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 are diverse settings. So um, I guess I, as I go forward, I feel like that's what I can do is is create settings and create worlds that do reflect what what the world looks like around us, and it's not all the same. Yeah, yeah. I think I, every point you made, I I really agree with. Um, I feel similarly because I you know I'm a I'm a white woman. I have been brought up in a uh, culture that is very similar to my own personal background. So even in like my my first books kind of draw on uh, stories like Treasure Island. Uh, My upcoming book, The World's Greatest Detective, is kind of a send up of Sherlock Holmes stories and uh, Agatha Christie. Uh, but all of my reference points are very European-centered and and very much a reflection of who I am culturally. Um, so I I definitely feel conscious of that, but also like I can't write from somebody else's perspective. I'm not I can't be a different person. But what I can do is really try to lift up the voices of other people who are writing different things and. Um, promote them as much as I can and try to make sure that my type of writing is only one of the many, many types of books that are available for kids. And while some kids will see themselves in my books, other kids will see themselves in other books. So it needs to not just be about me. It needs to be about a huge, diverse tapestry of writers and all sorts of different offerings. Um, and so sometimes the best thing I can do is just stop talking and, and let others talk instead. Again, just just so nicely said. So I, I, I'm going to stop talking on that point because you did a much better job of it than I 
possibly could. <laughs> so, oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> so, um, so coming back around, so you, you so tell me if you if you can just tell me a little bit more about your new book that's coming out this spring. I, I mean, you start you started to, and then um, so it, writing a writing a murder mystery for the middle grade market. What was that like? <laughs> <laughs> I'm still really nervous about how it's going to go over. Um, whenever. Uh... I tell adults, especially adults who aren't in the world of children's literature, I say, oh, I'm writing a murder mystery for children. And they just give me this horrified look. Like, why would you do such a thing to my poor child to teach her about murder and death? But then I visit fourth graders and they ask me what I'm writing next. And I say, I'm writing a murder mystery. Do you guys like murder? And they all cheer and get way more excited than they have ever been about pirates which is you know i'm not really sure what that says but it seems like the kids are cool with murder so right, right. <laughs> we'll, I'm, I'm not i'm not entirely sure what the reaction will be um but yeah like i said it is kind of a, a send-up of uh sherlock holmes stories and the sorts of i love reading uh, mystery novels i have read uh I think pretty much every Poirot story by Agatha Christie, my husband and I read aloud all the complete adventures of Sherlock Holmes to each other over the course of several years. Um, so I wanted to write something kind of in that vein. I loved the Westing game as a kid. I know there are a lot of us uh, writers who were inspired by the Westing game when we were growing up and are now kind of trying to write our own twisty mystery type stories. Um, so this book is uh, about a world where detective fever has taken hold. I actually read a great uh, nonfiction book called The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher by uh, Kate Summerskill, I think is the author. And she talks about um, a very well-publicized murder that happened in Victorian England and how uh, the way that it was investigated and publicized really got everybody totally captivated by the story and everyone was you know, following the newspaper every day to see if there were any new developments in the case and people like uh, Arthur Conan Doyle and Charles Dickens and Wilkie Collins were all playing armchair detective and trying to figure out who done it and uh, and that was also the age when uh, people really started writing murder mysteries like the Sherlock Holmes stories. Um, so in her nonfiction account, she talks about this kind of detective fever that took over uh, London during that time. And I thought it would be fun to imagine a world where uh, detective fever had been taken to a point where you have a street called Detectives Row, where everybody who has an office on the street uh, is a detective, and they all have their detective agencies lined up, uh, to the point where there are not actually enough crimes to go around. Uh, there are far too many detectives in, in the city. So <laughs> there are a couple very successful detectives. There's kind of a Sherlock Holmes figure in my story, and he's the, the world's greatest detective, and everyone wants to come to him with their problems. And then there are kind of a few middling detectives and then some very disreputable detectives who don't get a lot of work. Um, so that's where the, the inspiration for the story came from. And uh, my main character, uh, the hero, is a boy named Toby who lives with his uncle on Detectives Row. And his uncle is kind of a struggling detective. Uh, and Toby is an orphan and if his uncle can't afford to keep him around, Toby's worried he'll be sent to the orphanage. So he feels that he needs to help his uncle uh, become a better and more prominent detective uh, so he can make more money, so he can keep Toby. Um, and then it turns out that uh, the world's greatest detective, uh, his name is Hugh Abernathy. He's the, the only detective who's really making a, a good living at this point. He decides he's going to retire and hold a contest to choose his successor, uh, to have everybody gather at a big country house, and then they're going to solve a mystery, and whichever detective solves the mystery first will have Hugh Abernathy's blessing and get all of his clients and become the next big thing in, in detection in this world. Uh, so Toby decides to enter this contest on behalf of his uncle, even though Toby himself is not a terribly good detective. Uh, he, he thinks he 
he might have a shot at doing well and uh, and helping his uncle's reputation. And of course, as soon as all the detectives get to this uh, country house for the weekend, uh, things do not go as planned. Somebody ends up dead, and then uh, along with some of his friends, Toby has to figure out uh, who done it. Very cool. What a great, what a great setup. And uh, and when is that? Is out in? Do you have? Do you have an on sale date for that? At this yeah. Point? At this point, it looks like May sixteenth. May sixteenth. Uh, May seventeenth. Yeah. Okay, great. And I saw the cover. The cover looks really cool. I mean, isn't it, it great? Yeah, I... great style to it. Like it's got that. It's got that sort of that Sherlocky Holmes look to it, but at the same time, it's got you know it has like sort of the kind of cool. I don't know how you describe it, but I, I liked it a lot. Yeah, I uh, I'm trying to think of the right way. It's it's illustrated. It's by an illustrator whose work I really admire, and I'm not sure how to pronounce her name. Julia or Yulia uh, Sarda, and uh, she's done a couple other covers I've seen recently. Uh, Claire Legrand's "Some Kind of Happiness." She also did the art for, and I think that's a beautiful cover too. And, um, and you have that up. It's, it's, that's up at your website. It's it's carolinecarlson.com, right? Caroline Carlson Books. Books. You have a books like I do, right? Caroline yeah. carolinecarlsonbooks.com. <laughs> Someday I'm going to call that other Caroline Carlson and ask her to give me her domain name. But for now, <laughs> I, I want to do the same thing with the other Paul Durham. But he's a, he's actually a musician. He was a, he's a, the other Paul Durham is a is a uh, like the lead singer of a, a band called Black Lab, which is actually somewhat popular when I was in college so oh cool that's fun <laughs> yeah um, um, but as far as the cover art goes um, I think that's one of the most fun parts of having a book come out because you get to see someone else's interpretation of your story and it's always a total surprise to me like what style the art department will choose to go with and and how the illustrator will imagine your characters and your world and I just think that's really cool and uh, and, same, and with the interior art as well, right? So do, do you like to get your hands involved in that? And to the extent that the publisher lets you, um, do you do you like to sort of give notes and be and be involved in it, or you just kind of let them run with it? Um, I at this point, my editor usually sends me the art and says, "Isn't it great?" Oh, Which okay. I know is code for yep. "Yes, it's great." <laughs> and it, luckily for me, it always is great. If I were yeah. ever unhappy with it, I would certainly speak up. But I've been I've been super lucky and. I mean, if there's like something that's factually inaccurate about the art, that's something I would comment about. I think on one of the foreign editions of uh, the very nearly honorable League of Pirates, there's a illustration of uh, the gargoyle character. And it says in the text very clearly that the gargoyle does not have hands. And in fact, it, it comes up a lot because he's constantly frustrated that he can't do things like write notes and turn the pages in a book because he doesn't have hands. Right. And then on the cover, he has these big old hands. So <laughs> if I'd had the opportunity to comment on that, I, I would have. But in general, um, you know, I'm not an artist. Um, so I'm really excited to see what other people come up with. And uh, it's just cool to me to think that there are other artists out there collaborating with me on a story. And the same thing with the audiobook. Um, just seeing what a reader might do with my words and how she can make them her own that that I think is a really neat part of things and I'm happy to stay out of it to let other people uh do their creative stuff who 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 did the audio for very nearly honorable league of pirates uh Catherine Kelgren who okay. is she has narrated a ton of stuff and I I have to admit I have not actually listened to all of the books I've listened to part of the first book and I realized that hearing my own words was kind of making me twitch because I wanted to edit them all. <laughs> so I, mean, I haven't really gotten a chance to listen to them all the way through. Maybe someday I'll be brave enough to do it. But everyone who has listened to the audiobooks tells me that uh, she just does an amazing job doing lots of different voices. And yeah, um, I hear they're fabulous. <laughs> I'm sure they are. I'm sure they are. I, I mean, I'm in the same boat. We, we, we went on a road trip once, so I was able to listen. We, we, I still have, <laughs> you can tell how old our car is. We still, we still have CDs. So we just, okay. yeah. So we just, so we just fed the CD player like on the road trip. So that's how I made it through the first, the first book. But did you get uncomfortable? Um, I, I wouldn't say I was uncomfortable, but like you, there's definitely, I was like, Oh, I, yeah, I would have, I would have changed the sentence around. It's kind of like when you, it's kind of like when you're editing, if you actually stop and read something out loud to yourself, you get a whole different feel for it. And yeah, so it, it, it didn't make me totally uncomfortable, but there were things where I caught stuff and I was like, oh yeah, I, I would have done this differently. <laughs> um, but that, 
anytime I reread, even just like if I go to a, a school and read a chapter, I, it's the same thing. I'm like, oh, why didn't I? Why did, why, <laughs> why did I? Why yeah. did I phrase it that way? But um, but no, it's the, the audio. The audio is fun. All, all that stuff. It just goes. It goes. It's all part of the package, and it's just it. The first time you realize that it's not just you anymore, and there's this whole team of publishers and illustrators and editors and and voice actresses and whoever, whatever it might be, um, bringing your world to life. You, you know, you realize that um, you're not just making up stories in the bedroom, and you know, in your in your home office or your coop where I write, or wherever it may be that you write. It's uh, you know that you really have brought something to the world that'll that'll be there and if you're doing it well it'll be there after you're gone so it's um it's a cool job I, I i wouldn't want to be doing anything else yeah i agree it's it's really it's really exciting every day still after you know this is my fourth book coming out but seeing that cover art for the first time was just as thrilling as it was the first time around and just as thrilling as i thought it would be when i was a kid who wanted to write books yeah, and this was and this was a really cool interview. Thank you so much. I really really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. It's really nice to to talk about book stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, well. Good luck. Good luck with uh, with the new book. Everybody, go to carolinecarlsonbooks.com. And uh, is it the same? Is your handle on Twitter and Instagram and all that jazz the same thing? My Twitter handle is at carolinetc, okay. and on Facebook. Oh, I can't actually remember what it is. I think it's Caroline Carlson Books also. But there you, there you yeah, go. search for me and I'll be there. You'll find her. Well, thank you again, Caroline. Thank you so much. All right. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. As always, Telling Lies to Children was brought to you by, well, nobody. Just me and my guests. One of the nice things about being completely unknown in the vast world of podcasting is that you don't have to listen to me read 10 minutes worth of ads at the beginning and end of every episode. But I hope you'll check out my website, pauldurhambooks.com. There you can find out more about the Luck Ugly series, you can book a school visit, you can shop the newly opened Dead Fish Inn gift shop, or just reach out and say hello. I'd love to hear from you. You can also find links to all of my guests' websites and social media there. So until next time, I wish you happy reading, ugly luck, and I look forward to chatting with you again soon. See you next time.